Hi folks, as you're most likely aware, this episode has landed a bit late this week. Uh, the reason for this is due to sickness that has kept me bedridden for most of the week. The episode that you're about to hear is a bit more raw than usual, as I've not managed to have a lot of time for editing due to struggling in front of the computer. It also doesn't contain our usual box office roundup or additional reviews that I normally drop in after we've done the initial recording. And also, during the show, we did initially talk about plans for the fill-in show, because next week, Lee is away on holiday, uh, which was going to be an interim show with some compilation stuff and some new stuff. But that's not going ahead now. We're just taking a little bit of a downtime, and we will be returning back to normal after next weekend. So any discussion about those plans for the show has been removed from this edit. Thank you for listening as always. I hope you enjoy this show. Like I say, it's a bit more raw than normal, but you get more of the ums and ers and friendly banter that me and Lee tend to fill the whole show with. So, Lee, take it away. This is The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And this podcast will self-destruct in five seconds or an hour and a half, depending on how long it takes. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Beacon. And we are back for another fun-packed episode of The Film File. Uh, and when I say fun-packed, I mean we've packed it full of fun. Everywhere yes. you look, it's just fun. Fun. It's, it's stacked films. up behind me. It is. Don't it's... look behind you. There's more fun. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you how you are, Andy, because um, <laughs> Deja I, know, vu. <laughs> I, I seem to remember doing that last week. And, and I think I've cursed you because you're still not feeling well. But you yeah. are soldiering on, as I said to you in a text message. You're a film geek. Damn it. Keep going. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm really not well. Yeah, well, I can tell how not well you are because you didn't join me for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Yeah, I had to catch it later in the week once I felt like I had the energy to do it, which was basically before I started the shift, and then I regretted it for the rest of my shift because I didn't have the energy for the shift afterwards. It's it's a struggle, and I will be contacting the doctors sometime this week. I think you should. Because uh, there's like definitely it. something not quite right going on here. Yes, get it checked out. Make sure you're better. What we are going to talk about is last week's social challenge. Yes, we set a social challenge as we do each and every week where we invite you, yes, dear listener, and hello, Australia and Utah. And you know what? Anywhere else where you listen to us to take part with uh, dropping us your response to our question of the week. And last week's question was, Andy? It was all about opening scenes. We've already done closing scenes, so we decided to ask what film or films have the best opening scenes that immediately drew you in. The rest of the film might be rubbish, but that opening scene is what captivates you. And um, we've had a, quite a lot of responses across the socials. First up, regular listener Stephen Young. Hey, Stephen Young. First thing that comes to mind is Top Gun Maverick, Danger Zone. Such great nostalgia feels. And yet it kind of just like draws you back into what you loved about Top Gun straight away. It gets you that, that energy. So you're just like, right, take the, take the rest of the film where you want, which thankfully it was... All right. Yeah, and of course I mentioned Jaws because I think <laughs> that sets the tone for the rest of the movie. And if you're not in by the end of that sort of five-minute period, then it's not the film for you. I think it's a magnificent opener. And what mm. works about it is you 
do not see anything. You don't see any blood, don't see the shark. All you see is the terror and, and Spielberg sets the stall out for the rest of the movie. Absolutely brilliant opening sequence. And that's why people are still talking about it. Yeah. Salty Red Popcorn over on Mastodon will agree with you because his answer was, once again, the answer is Jaws. It is. Ashley Porcian Cooler uh, gave us The Wonder from 2022. It's set in the 19th century, but the first scene starts on the soundstage. And she loves that drawing in. Oh, I've not seen that the movie. Story. Um, Fulton Balg on Mastodon, Once Upon a Time in the West. And I had that on my list because that is such a great opener. That is the perfect Western opener yes no i know that when we did closings we had the searchers as being the perfect closing for a western once upon a time in the west is the perfect opening for a western combine those two films together you've got the perfect western um chris white 2001 yep i i'll agree with that one yes yeah, funny enough i've watched that a few times i've been talking in my film group about um postmodernism and how the simpsons are the masters of postmodernism mm. and that opening scene cropped up a couple of times uh, Chevy Shinen Beeson, Double Indemnity. Over on Twitter, Katie Smith Wong gave us Train Spotting, which was another one that was on my list. I mean, it's the perfect answer. The yeah. beat of love for life, Renton, Spud, Sick Boy running from security guards, and then that whole choose life, choose a job, choose a family monologue comes over. By the end of that scene, you are entirely in. Yep, totally agree. Uh, Nadine Geneva, The Matrix, and yeah, what a great opening. Trinity being taken down like all the agents oh again <laughs> it sets the tone for the rest of the film because as we know that the, the thing about the matrix is is it reinvented the action sequence mm. for such a long time and if you weren't in by that in that first five minute sequence then the, the rest of the film wasn't for you but it gave you everything that you needed to know about where that film was going and the style of it even though you were probably very com confused lizzie go lucky the first Jack Reacher film opening scene has pretty much no dialogue and is amazing. I love that first Jack Reacher film. We're going to be talking about Mission Impossible in our review this week. That was the first teaming of Chris McQuarrie and, and Tom Cruise. Uh, and while fans of the book rightly say he looks nothing like Reacher, he's not a, a, a giant. Six foot eight beefcake but <laughs> what they did with that was a it's a great throwback to 1970s style thrillers which of course are my favorite uh but it also shows that for a little guy uh in that movie that you know you don't have to be a hulking giant to be dangerous i think it's a fantastically mm. underrated film on uh, and one of tom cruise's best uh film lust gave another thumbs up for jaws yep can't go wrong Colm mulhall gave us spectre although it may have peaked early. And that's a great example of something which has a great opening scene, but then the rest of the film kind of doesn't live up to it. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of... There's not much in the way of love for Spectre, and I, I, I'm i going to go the other way. I, I like Spectre a lot. I, I mean, clearly after following um, Skyfall, it was, a, it was a hard film to win over. Yeah. But I, I've got more love for it than the most, I think. Joe Stevenson gave us Scream. Yep, yeah, yeah, perfect. Again, sets out the stall right at the beginning. Cinematic Sound Radio podcast uh, just posted a link to the opening credits for Superman from 1978, and all the nostalgia berries flooded all over me and left me weeping. So, uh, yeah, I'm there I, with that. I'm with you. you. The, this is the geek that I am. It's that little introduction of where it shows the Daily Planet from the 1930s. And, uh, yeah. It, it 
got me absolutely and, and still gets me every time i watch that film you play that opening sequence and um it takes you takes you so into as richard donner said verisimilitude about about that movie uh, paul hayne submitted x-men 2 with uh, nightcrawler's assault on the president yeah great one yeah I never thought uh, about that one yeah yeah it's a, it, that, I, that scene is just the rest of the film is okay if like and pretty good but that scene itself introduces nightcrawler in such a perfect fluid way and we've not seen anything like that at, at that particular time that was that was no. a really bold introduction and again the first two x-men films highly underrated for me i know they people now retrospectively knock them I, i've got a lot of a lot of love for those first two x-men films especially x2 stevie dan submitted halloween yeah with um the young michael myers um being unmasked outside the house over on facebook lindsay story gave us a list go on scream halloween yep. gremlins watchman the godfather train spotting kill bill one deadpool 2 x2 and finally gardens of the galaxy volume one it sounds like the best football scores ever that it's uh, <laughs> kill bill one deadpool two <laughs> um <laughs> owen cooper blade runner scott pilgrim the opening swinging scene in Amazing Spider-Man 2, Watchmen, Drive, any of the Indiana Jones, especially Dial of Destiny because it's the best part of the film, Goodfellas and Up. Yeah, perfect. And, oh, up, yeah, uh, yeah, boy, no. Yes and no for Up because, yeah. you know. It's heartbreaking. It's still heartbreaking. <laughs> still gets me every time. And I know Angela just uh, kind of <laughs> missed the drift of what the uh, question was and said 28 days later when he stood on the bridge in the centre of London and no one else was around. That was a bit later on. <laughs> yes, I had to point that out. But we get the drift that, like, you know, after that initial um, break out of the animals and then it flashes forwards, his complete isolation in the whole of London is just such an impact. Yeah. So we'll let you off with that one. Just don't let it happen again. Yes. Patricia Meakin, Brigadoon, Shape of Water, Waterworld, and Pretty Woman. Have I told you that my mum's got an obsession with Pretty Woman? I don't know if you have, but um, she, she won't think, be alone. I think she will submit Pretty Woman for the answer to every question that we put out <laughs> on the socials <laughs> and Waterworld. Um, Stephen Blaine Young agrees with her on Shape of Water, says it's incredible. Why did he not think of that? Um, Lee Christopher Leary, The Rock speed predator 2 and saving private ryan yeah good choices i mean saving, saving private, private ryan, ryan is yeah. uh, i i mentioned to you on um because i joined threads yeah um and said that you know it is probably the best opening to a war movie of all time because it is so visceral and it, even if you don't like the rest of the film which i know people who don't you you can't take away the power of that that opening sequence Janet Melling agrees with Saving Private Ryan, uh, which strangely enough, my mum's never watched. So uh, maybe it's now, time to get to her get, out of her now fixation. Now to get her to watch it. Um, Helen Blair, Les Mis, Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, and The Green Mile. Oh, The Green Mile. Yes. What a choice. Some, yeah, some, some interesting choices on that one. Kerry gave, gave forwards Grease, Dirty Dancing, Pretty Woman, and Bring It On. I love Bring It On. <laughs> The sequel's not so much, but I love Bring It On. And I might bring it to a deep dive at some point. Oh, okay. That's one I've not seen, so that will be. <laughs> and Carl LaDuke, for the opposite reason of Perfect, 
Bubba Hotep. <laughs> Great film. Great film. Um, a lot of the things that I would have suggested came up in other people's lists, but I just wanted to say that for opening scenes, Quentin Tarantino manages to hook you in pretty much every time. I think he's the master of getting the opening scene, and it's usually because he just uses dialogue exchanges. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, you think of Pulp Fiction, you know, with the um, pumpkin and honey bunny yeah. conversation. You're hooked into that before you realise what they're actually doing. Uh, Reservoir Dogs sat around the table arguing over who's got who's tipping what and why people don't tip, and also what Madonna's like a virgin actually means. Yeah, every one of his films has that great hook of conversational dialogue that feels like a natural flow and straightaway makes you kind of makes you kind of believe in the characters. And if you remember what people were talking about when Reservoir Dogs came out is that opening sequence and mm. what an impact it made and what a different way to open a, a film about a heist. Yep. So, yeah, a load of great answers this week, uh, which also resulted in me adding a few more things onto the deep dive list. <laughs> which is, <laughs> hey, it's it, yeah, if we didn't, we'd be doing it wrong. Yes. Okay, so this week's social challenge. We want you to think about... So with Barbie opening uh, next week, uh, which I certainly won't be around to watch, and hopefully you'll get to see it before I do. Is there a toy that you think has been neglected as a toy to film extravaganza? So we've had a couple. Uh, of course, we've had Transformers with mixed results. We've had uh, Clue uh, which uh, from Cluedo. Of course, we've got Barbie. Um, we've had Battleship. But what toy to film? do you think is still outstanding? So um, keep in mind that there's certain films that have already been done. G.I. Joe, I forgot to mention. What mm -hmm. favourite toy of yours would be turned into a movie? And what kind of genre would it be? Let us know across all of the socials, and you can do that by finding us on... Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Mastodon, and Threads. Uh, just search for Film File UK. There we are. You can also answer the question of the week via Spotify in the show description. It'll be down there and you can just reply through there. Or you can email us in the answer if you want. Podcast at filmfile.uk. We're happy to hear from any of you. Hey, just a quick one. I, I've joined Threads and it's a much nicer place so far. It's friendly, isn't Less it? Less Nazis. So far. So far. I mean, it's only a matter of time. Anyway, what kind of a show do we have? for you this week of course it's going to be action-packed of course there's going to be witty banter and of course there's going to be me and andy and we're going to be talking about in our deep dive probably the granddaddy of political thrillers we're going to be talking about all the president's men starred robert redford and dustin hoffman we've got reviews into yes whether you choose to accept them or not we're going to be talking about mission impossible dead reckoning part one we've got chatter We've got banter and we've got the news for this week. I suppose it's good that we've got a lot of films coming out that are going to make money this year because the next few years might be in trouble. It's going to look a little bit lean because the announcement this week from SAG, the Actors Union, is that they have called a strike, uh, joining alongside the Writers Union, the WGA. Mm. It's a real back and forth between studio heads 
and actors right now. And now that actors are out, if anything, and you and I talked about this, is going to give a bit of a punch in the arm to hopefully getting the strike over with. But the rhetoric that we're hearing right now, it's not looking yeah. too hopeful. Yes. Um, on the Writers, Writers Guild strike side of it, apparently the studio heads were playing hardball and had decided that they were going to refuse to negotiate any further terms until around October in the hope of forcing the writers to take a lesser deal in the like necessity to get back to work and start earning money again. Um, but now that the Screen Actors Guild has struck, the industry is hit with a major stoppage. This is the first time since 1960 that both the WGA and SAG have both struck, been striking at the same time. And it's quickly going to impact the global film and TV industry. Production on many scripted TV shows has halted. I mean, the writer strike is in its third month now. Can you believe it's been three months since that started? Really? Blind. I didn't, I didn't realise it had been that long. I really mm. didn't. And that's already shut down a fair few productions that we've reported on over the past few weeks. But literally within 24 hours of the announcement of the Screen Actors Guild striking, we got lists and lists and lists of things to not expect anytime soon, such as Gladiator 2, Beetlejuice 2, Deadpool 3, Twisters, Mortal Kombat sequel, uh, Jorah number 2, Paddington in Peru, Final Destination 6, all these films that were in production, plugs being pulled. Now, there are some things that are still continuing. House of the Dragon Season 2 is still going ahead because it's a predominantly British cast yeah. with predominantly British production crew. And it's not impacted in any way by um, the WGA strike or SAG. International productions as well, obviously won't suffer. This is all American-based productions or productions that have a SAG actor in them. So you might have an international film that has one actor from the US that now they've got to stop. It's going to cause, if this continue, if this goes on for a significant number of weeks, we are going to have a very, very vacant marketplace next year. I mean, Deadpool 3 was supposed to be coming out in March next year. Yeah. And we'd already, that, interestingly enough, dropped those images of yeah. uh, uh, Hugh Jackman in full Wolverine costume, which had all the fans giddy with excitement. Uh, and then a week later, boom. In a, in a fiery and incredibly well-received speech, which can be seen in full over at NBC News, the SAG-AFTRA president, Fran Drescher, has said, we are being victimised by a very greedy enterprise. At some point, you have to say, no, we're not going to take this anymore. You people are crazy. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? The entire business model has been changed by streaming and AI. If we don't stand tall right now, we're going to be in jeopardy. You cannot change the business model as much as it's been changed and not expect the contract to change too. And I, observant people who follow our Film File Facebook page will have seen me posting my support over the Screen Actors Guild strike, in which I also made clear that this is not about your big name stars. It isn't a bunch of overpaid millionaires crying over nothing. Yes, those names are vocal and involved in strike action, but they are using their voices to create fair conditions and pay for the jobbing actors, the background artists, the ones who struggle to break the 26K per year that allows them to get medical insurance. Those are the ones who rely on residual payments from distribution and who are most at threat by the use of AI to create background crowds and NPC-like supporting cast. So don't think that this is, you know, remember when Scarlett Johansson kicked up a stink and everyone's yes, like, oh, yeah. who does she think she is? 
she was fighting for all the people who worked on that project themselves, who had the back-end deals based on cinema distribution. This is exactly the same. The people who you will see in the front headlines, the people you'll see on the picket lines being very vocal will be your big stars who don't because necessarily they, they, need... they pull the attention. They get the attention yeah. that's, that talks to everyone else. They get... they. Yeah, they they are, they are the ones who you'll go, okay, what you're talking about makes sense. And they're fighting on behalf of their fellow actors. There's already a bit a huge block to try to get into acting. You know, there's that wall that they say that you hit, that it's easy to get to the wall, but you can never get over it. Well, the wall now has another wall behind it because of um, modern streaming and AI technology. So anyone trying to get into acting these days, you want to make sure that there's going to be a fair deal on the table when you finally get through. Um, it's yeah, we love film and we love TV and we would love there to be new content every week. And we love when new stuff's dropping on Apple, on Netflix and Dival. Like, you know, we, we, we completely get into it. But we will also be happy if this strike goes on long enough that they can get a proper pay deal. Even if it means next year's film file shows will be just us going, eh, let's talk about three films from 1920. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we've done that before. We spent a year doing... Uh, movies that we'd never seen yeah so yeah even if there will be less content next year and you know we love our content we're still going to be in support of everything that the actors are fighting for they should not be forced to take a, a shoddy pay deal which is going to cripple them in the future because last time that they negotiated all of this modern streaming and ai technology wasn't an issue but over the past few months in particular We've seen both come into play in quite big ways. And in the streaming issue, well, I mentioned last week how Crater had been pulled off Disney Plus after only seven weeks. Everyone involved in that who had a back-end deal, getting no money anymore. And that is what is shocking about this industry at the moment. I mean, let's let's ignore for a second the dodgy financial um, accounting practices that they use in order to make big hits look like failures so they don't have to give back-end deals to the lower-end workers. Uh, which famously, Men in Black, the huge success that it was, spawned a franchise. Uh, the writer of the, the script has got no residuals at all since day one on that one because they've cooked the books in order to make it look like he doesn't get any, any money. I was reading a tweet by John Cusack and he had shares, he had a profit share in Say Anything, you know, mm. iconic with him holding that boombox above his head. Yeah, and uh, it's been on TV, it's been on video. When he saw the accounts for it, apparently that movie, been around for thirty odd years, never made any money. Made made no money. And it's it's. I mean, this is. I studied accountancy, and one of the reasons why I realised that I never want to be an accountant is I saw how it can be used and manipulated in order to make successful things look bad or bad things look successful. And I decided I don't want to be that kind of corrupt, scheming manipulator. And so I know exactly what kind of accounting practices they're doing in order to twist this and make things look less successful so that the fat cats can still get their paycheck and their huge profit, whilst the people on the bottom end don't get their fair deals. So going forwards, the Alliance, Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers also released a statement. A strike is certainly not the outcome we hoped for, as studios cannot operate without the performers that bring our TV shows and films to life. The union has regrettably chosen a path that will lead to financial hardship for countless thousands of people who depend on the industry. If it sends a message, that's the important thing. And what could even send a message 
once those bits of content stop dropping on your favorite streaming service, cancel your streaming service, guys. Cancel it for a few months. There won't be anything new coming on there that you're going to be interested in. Come back when the actors have got a fair pay deal. I'm seriously considering it. Great idea. Uh, we stand by uh, both SAG and by the WGA. Um, interestingly enough, if you are a write-up in animation, you are not part of the WGA. So expect, I suppose, lots of animation projects. Lots of animations. With, with a British cast. <laughs> yeah, British cast all over the place. So uh, Rowan Atkinson gets to work. <laughs> <laughs> now, even though there's been that news, that means that everything's stopping. It hasn't stopped the little trickle of like announcements this week, but I think in future weeks, we're going to be a bit sparse on the actual news. I mean, you mentioned the Deadpool shots that we've seen from set with um, the yellow costume for Wolverine. Yes. Yeah. The iconic and, John Romita Jr. Uh, created by Len Wein uh, costume. And there was another shot, which was a longer shot that you saw what looked like a a collapsed 20th century Fox logo. Yes, so, that's well. <laughs> so they're clearly going as meta as you'd expect Deadpool to go. And I'm there for it. Uh, but elsewhere, we've also got Superman Legacy. We've had more casting announcements, which for a film that now won't go into production for quite some time. Uh, Barry scene stealer Anthony Carrigan has joined the cast as Metamorpho. Um, anyone who's seen Barry will know the bald-headed Anthony oh, Carrigan. so good in that. Who really, like, shone through in every every time he was on screen, he shone through, and he's a great bit of casting for Metamorpho. Um, he's all, already played a DC villain. In, in Gotham, he played uh, Mr. Zaz. Okay. I didn't know that. I, I, I didn't stick around with Gotham. His new character is a more heroic one who is an adventurer who's become a shifting mass of chemicals. Uh, David Coven-Sweat, as we've already announced, is Clark Kent Superman. Rachel Brosnan as Lois Lane. Isabella Marsad has been added as Hawkgirl. Edie Gathigi as Mr. Terrific. And Nathan Fillion as Guy Gardner, Green Lantern. <laughs> yes, so and I'm, I'm glad you made perfect that. Casting. I'm glad you made that <laughs> announcement because I was grinning on the inside when, when I read that uh, he finally gets to be an on-screen hero. Even though he's a, he's Guy Gardner, which any fans of the comics will know that Guy Gardner's not the nicest of Green Lanterns. <laughs> <laughs> James Gunn has also spoken about his excitement over the project, following the news of the hires. Posting on threads. Yes, James Gunn is now posting on threads. Superman Legacy opens two years from today. <laughs> Does it? <laughs> will it? <laughs> Who knows? It may seem far away way to many of you, but it's close to me. We have a lot to do between now and then, but I haven't been more excited about a project in forever. And this cast slowly coming together. Holy cow. Asked about the inclusion of the new heroes. He said that they fit the story that he's telling. Story always comes first for James Gunn. The primary story most definitely revolves around Superman and Lois. And he's confirmed that the actors he's casting for this movie will then go on to play those roles in other DCU projects. And uh, giving my old pal Nate a bowl cut might have been my primary reason for casting him as guy Gardner, <laughs> before adding that fillion will play him in all parts of the dcu including the green lanterns tv show awesome looking forward to it looking forward to it. I'd, i want to see a, a proper superman film it's been a long long time a long long time since we've seen a proper superman film 
something to tap into what Superman is in the comics. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not disrespecting. If you've got love for Man of Steel, you've got love for Man of Steel, but he doesn't represent the Superman of the comics, and some of us do want the Superman of the comics. Yeah. Tron Ares, another film that was stopped production. Uh, Shameless and Gotham star Cameron Moynihan and Yellow Jackets actress Sarah Desjardins are joined, have joined the cast of Tron Ares for Disney. The pair joins the impressive cast that already includes Jared Leto, Evan Peters, Jodie Turner-Smith and Greta Lee. The new film, All That We Know, it's going to reportedly focus on the emergence of Ares, a sentient AI program that crosses over into the human world that isn't ready for the contact. Leto will play that human manifestation of that program and we'll know more <laughs> when the actor's strike is over and this actually goes into production. Uh, sticking with sci-fi. Please do. James Cameron has confirmed that at least one sequel, if not more, is in the works for Alita Battle Angel. You've got quite a bit more love for this than I have, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I thought it had it had good sci-fi vibes, kind of an anime kind of look to it, but also like it had a good heart to it, which drew me in. I've been one of the ones who's been hoping for it to eventually get a sequel. And apparently the reveal that he's, he's planned for a sequel was all done through a real estate listing. Okay. Because the film wasn't a huge success. So a, p- a piece in Forbes this week has the Avatar filmmaker talking about selling his 33 million ranch in California, where he's confirmed that he's selling it in order to finance not one, but multiple Alita films. I, I feel as though he, if he's doing that for me, I could at least go back and, and give it another shot. Yes, I, th- I think you deserve, it deserves you to give it a second chance. I feel almost, a- I feel almost guilty that I've, I've, I've not watched it in a long time. Um, obviously, uh, there's other reasons why they're selling as well, but that's that's the key thing is that it gives him finance to finance these films that he'd have to do himself because no studio is going to back it. Uh, but also because he's him and his wife are working in different parts of the world constantly, they're just never that that hot that home anyway. I On Avatar, he works in Wellington and Los Angeles. It, it it must be such a hardship. <laughs> on the new on the new Alita Battle Angel films, they'll be working in Austin, so it just doesn't make sense for them to keep that house. Um, yeah, I'm I'm there for a new Alita, uh, and I'm sure that the big fan base out there that are very they're not as annoyingly vocal as a certain other fan base, which we won't mention today. Uh, but they've always been optimistic about the chance that he'll come back, and it's nice to see that sometimes you don't have to keep harassing and putting down everything else in order to get get what you want. Uh, Ferrari has now got a release date. The Michael Mann film, which uh, Neon has acquired the dis- domestic distribution rights to, will open in theatres on Christmas Day in the US. Okay. Which will probably end up being Boxing Day in the UK, or just into the new year, um, hitting into awards season. This is, Ma- this is Michael Mann's first film in eight years. His last film was Black Hat in 2015. Never saw that one. That's one of the... No, I think that's the only Michael Mann film I've never seen. It's Black Hat. Yeah, um, I've, I've not seen it either. And I don't know why. It didn't get much of a release, did it, in the UK? I think that's why. No, it didn't. Um, Adam Driver in this film stars as Enzo Ferrari, alongside Pen- Penelope Cruz as his wife, Laura. Shailene Woodley, Jack O'Connell, Sarah Gadden, Patrick Dempsey and Gabrielle Leon co-star. And it's set during the summer of 1957, following Enzo Ferrari as he deals with his company on the verge of bankruptcy, a stormy marriage and the death of his son. Against that backdrop, Ferrari wages everything on one race, the 1,000 mile trek across Italy. Sounds interesting. Yep. It's not top of my list, that kind. I've still not got around to seeing uh, 
uh, Ford versus Ferrari. Well, that's a good film. James Mangold, and, and, and I should. Mm. It's a very good film. Um, totally recommend it. So just talking about a certain fan base. Uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League has been pulled from the European end of HBO Max. And um, could the US version be far behind? Now, we know across all the streaming services, they are pulling content right, left and centre. And you mentioned Crater last week. It made its debut on HBO Max way back in March 2021. It received some positive reviews, which were infinitely better than the 2017 effort. Uh, but nothing became of uh, restoring the Snyderverse, despite the hashtag. Uh, but earlier this week, there was a lot of disgruntled murmurings on social media when the movie's trailer has mysteriously been pulled from Max's YouTube channel. And that's odd, considering the fact that it's by far one of their most viewed trailers with over 30 million views. But does that mean that it is going to be pulled? And we know, right, left and centre, content isn't there forever. We said this last week as well. I was listening back to the show about mm. actually owning physical copies because, you know, uh, streaming services aren't a library. It doesn't always mean that they're going to be out there no matter if not burst, then is at the point of going through a massive, massive change. Mm. This could be one of those platform changes, which is a little bit more obvious with such a, a big title. Probably end up on Netflix. Apparently the pulling of the trailer was down to a rights issue for the right. um, Leonard Cohen song, Hallelujah. Maybe the Leonard Cohen estate has now turned around and says, Zach, stop abusing this song and using it everywhere. It does not mean what you seem to think it means. No, it doesn't. Um, it really, really doesn't. <laughs> um, they are planning for it to, they are planning for that trailer to be reinstated once they can sort out the rights issue. And this might be down to like how YouTube's algorithms go, oh, there's some someone else's work being used in here and it's automatically take, take it off for them. As for it getting removed off, the HBO Max services worldwide, the whole film. The difference between this and the other content that's been removed recently is there is a physical version of this that you can purchase. And what I have found yeah. amusing is that despite the fact there's this physical version out there that you would have thought that all the Zack Snyder fanboys would have bought, I've seen a lot of Zack Snyder fanboys moaning now that it's been removed off HBO Max. And it's like, well, Surely, as a big fan, you would have paid for it. So are you not proving our point that Zack Snyder fans <laughs> aren't going to pay for things? Well, there's some degree of irony with that one. You've got to wonder whether or not it was still getting any views. Yeah. They're not going to take stuff off that's still drawing in new subscribers. Um, but, like I say, the, the difference is that the stuff that's been getting ditched off Disney and Netflix in recent months hasn't got distribution in a physical format. And that's the major issue there, is that... because. You know, okay, everyone who worked on Zack Snyder's Justice League, who gets residuals, every time that someone buys one of the Blu-rays, they get the residuals. It's still out there. It's still available. Support it if you want to. You're clearly not supporting it because you're moaning that it's not on HBO anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, Constantine, and, and Constantine and I Am Legend sequels. Yeah, both have gone very quiet. Yes. Um, obviously, with the writer's strike on, um, Akiva Goldsman, who's was attached to both of them, isn't continuing with the work. But he's been promoting his Apple TV series, The Crowded Room, starring Tom Holland and Amanda Seyfried recently. He spoke with the playlist about his other projects, which are in the works, and he's confirmed that those two sequels are still somewhere down the line. 
but you can't say much as okay. everything is on hold. Um, and once the strikes are over, they are the first things on his agenda. My pens are down, so there's nothing to do. But yeah, they're the next things I'm writing when I'm allowed to write again. And I'd already begun I Am Legend 2 when we started striking. And Francis Lawrence and Keanu Reeves and I have broken Constantine too. I just haven't started typing yet. So it is all down to the fact that the strike's been going on for three months that we've heard nothing. But Goldsman reassures us that once they get that fair pay deal, we shall be expecting them going into production. Now, do you remember the Borderlands movie? Yeah, Jack Black was was uh, connected to it. We were all over this when, when it was announced and it was in production. Mm. That's got to be two years back at, at, at least, isn't it? It's been two years since filming actually wrapped on it back in June 2021. And the film still has no firm release date and no footage has been seen by the public. No finished footage anyway, just some set photos and that's about it. Now, some eagle-eyed people over on Redditor have spotted that the film's final writing credits have now been released on the WGA site about three weeks ago. And with it, one crucial mm -hmm. name change along with some key additions that have drawn attention. We know that Craig Mazin, who gave us Chernobyl and Last of Us, was attached as the main writer for since day one alongside Roth. Well, Mazin's name is completely gone, replaced by the name Joe Crombie alongside Roth as the two official writers on the project, which suggests yeah. that... Uh, Mason is doing an Alan Smithy here and refusing to have his name attached to it. Doesn't bode well. Uh, there's no Joe Crombie listed on the IMDb, the closest name being author Joe Abercrombie, but the official WGA site is unlikely to make such a naming error. More likely is that it is a pseudonym that Mason's using. Uh, the film has also had a bit of a mixed bag of post-production phase. Reshoots have been taken place last summer that hired Gary Ross, who gave us Pleasantville and The Hunger Games for rewrites. The film was then reportedly test screened in November, leading to Lionsgate requiring even more work to be done. Then in January, uh, Tim Miller had jumped on board to amicably take over as director, kicking Eli Roth off set for two more weeks of additional shootings, um, with Zach Ollenweiss writing new pages. Ross and Ollenweiss aren't the only writers who've taken a shot at the script either. Final WGA credits cite them alongside Aaron Berg, Oren Uziel, Ewell Taylor, Tony Rattenmeyer, Chris Bremner, and even the Idol series creator, Blimey. Sam Levinson, as all having contributed. This is a hodgepodge of a film. Yeah, I, I, I think we're looking at and this. And to be honest, did we expect anything less from Eli Roth? Well, no, no, but we spoke about this uh, in, in great detail during the production process, and, and you weren't happy with some of the casting ideas. To have gone through that many writers, that many uh, other hands, this is going to be one of those legendary, uh, legendary on the shelf movies. And we'll, at some point, probably next summer, yeah. actually, when there's going to be nothing out, it'll get dropped then. <laughs> yeah. For those who don't know what Borderlands is, in the film, Kate Blanchett will play Lilith, an infamous outlaw with a mysterious past who reluctantly returns to her home planet of Pandora to find the missing daughter of the universe's most powerful son of a bitch, Atlas. Edgar Ramirez. She forms an alliance with an unexpected team, an elite mercenary named Roland, Kevin Hart, preteen de demolitionist, Tiny Tina, Ariana Greenblatt, and a rhetorically challenged protector, Krieg, Florian Monto. Um, the persistent, wise-ass robot, Claptrap, voiced by Jack Black, and mentally unstable scientist, Tannis, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. Some great names. But. But. 
I, I was I was skeptical when Eli Roth was attached because I just I think it's too big a project for someone like Roth to have tackled from the first place, and it's looking more and more like he was completely out of its depth. Maybe we'll find out one day. Yeah, as I say, probably next summer when there's nothing out. Uh, Steven Soderbergh, uh, he of Magic Mike, um, he of yeah. the Ocean's Eleven films, has secretly filmed a sci-fi comedy titled Command Z, which is going to be released next week in the States. Uh, unveiled on its own production website. And if you get a chance, have a look at uh, Steven Soderbergh's website. It is very, very amusing. It seems no one in Hollywood knew that Soderbergh was working on this film. As I said, it's called Command Z. And then he unveiled his trailer. The film will see a scientist send three employees back in time to present day 2023 to change the course of history and avert a mysterious cataclysm. So according to the uh, blog post for the projects unveiling the series as a total runtime of 90 minutes split across eight episodes of varying length. So perhaps uh, Soderbergh is unsure whether it's going to be an actual TV project or simply a film that's split into eight parts. All we do know is that Michael Cera is one of the actors involved. But other than that, you can check this out from July the 17th and the film Command Z will be available on Soderbergh's website, extension765.com. It's not the first time Soderbergh's done that anyway. He's, he's... Little stealth projects. Yeah. I love it when they manage to get away with a stealth project. It's, like, it, it, it's amazing in this day and age that some people can still manage to do it without anyone realising that they're doing stuff. And finally, it's a quick chat about some trailer drops. Particularly one trailer drop. We'll, we'll go straight to that, shall we? There was one trailer drop this week that we'd be, we, we, we only mentioned a few weeks ago that there's been nothing about it and it's due out at Christmas. And then the trailer landed. And boy, we should have expected this because this is the director who gave us the Paddington movies. This is Paul King with it, all his whimsical charm tackling Wonka. And that trailer, straight away, I'm in. Yeah, it looked great. Uh, Timothy Chalamet uh, plays the young Willy Wonka in this one. It's kind of an origin movie. Uh, I guess you would call it Wonka the beginning or Wonka year one. But it, you, you're absolutely right, Andy. It looks everything that we'd hoped from a Paul King film. It seems to have brought all the charm uh, with him from, from the Paddington films. Look great. Uh, I'm, I'm totally sold on it. And he's brought um, Hugh Grant as an umpa lumpa. Oh, yeah. How can I not talk about Hugh Grant? <laughs> because uh, one thing you have to have in your life, if you've not got it, and your, your day's not looking great, just head over to any website where they are showing the Wonka trailer. See Hugh Grant as the umpa lumpa taking the look from the Gene Wilder, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, it is a thing of beauty. Um, I am so in. I saw Mumsy. I'm going to call her that because I think... You know, I know a son that well now. I, I saw your mum sort of <laughs> say, what do you think to this? And uh, it just <laughs> looks awesome. We also got a new Blue Beetle trailer, which promises action over angst. Um, Still looks if, a bit generic. Yeah, this was an HBO to make it stand out. project initially, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, I think maybe it'll work better there. Yeah. I'm not sold on it. I think it might end up being another flop at the box office for DC. Sadly so. Sadly, I'm going to agree with you. I don't like anything to be to be uh, a flop, but it just didn't have much about it at all. No. Or wait and see, but I'm not, not convinced. And a trailer for a TV series that is due to land pretty soon. Twisted Metal TV series. 
Um, the trailer's out there, and it looks great. I miss this one. Tell me all about it. Paced very loosely on um, the video games from the PlayStation era, which is getting a revamp in this day and age. Um, this is developed by Michael Jonathan Smith, and it's it's basically a post-apocalyptic wilderness, which has Anthony Mackie, Steve, Stephanie Beatrice, Thomas Hayden Church, Will Arnett, Richard Cabral, and Samoa Joe, all as um, the bizarre characters within this uh, this this strange apocalyptic wasteland of um, of complete madness and uh, car races and takedowns. Mackie plays John Doe, a talkative milkman with an amnesia, who's given a mission to tra traverse the desolate world to deliver a cryptic package in order to stay alive. Um, alongside the assistance of Quiet, a rash car thief, Doe faces a life-altering opportunity but must confront ruthless marauders in deadly and destructive vehicles to secure a chance at a better future. This is from the same minds who gave us Deadpool and Zombieland. And you okay. watch the trailer for this series and you go, yep, lands on Peacock in the US on July the 27th. Hopefully we'll get to see it in the UK pretty soon after then. But the trailer more than stoked my fires. And finally, you know, Hollywood aren't very good at keeping secrets, apart from, of course, Steven Soderbergh. But he's not the only one who has a mysterious comeback film on the horizon for 2023. Uh, yeah, Studio Ghibli's very own Hayao Miyazaki has something in the works. Uh, he's been cultivating an unknowable new project uh, with the title How Do We Live? Or it's set to be known internationally as The Boy and the Heron that has remained tightly under wraps, shrouded in dark mystery until its release in Japan only, uh, only very, very recently. Um, mm. Because it's foregoing its traditional marketing with the main selling point, this is a new Miyazaki film. And it's the return of the master to the art form, the co-founder of, animation, of animation's most sacred studio, who is a unique voice um, in filmmaking. So if you're excited about uh, Studio Ghibli's uh, newest arrival, there's something right here for you. And that, folks, that's the news for this week. This is The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And if this is your first time and we're looking at you, uh, Australia, and you want to know more about The Film File, hit that subscription button and become part of the film file family like the fantastic four but they're really just just two of us and lots <laughs> and lots of listeners so i'll let you figure that one out all you have to do head over to your favorite podcast platform hit the subscription button and join the film file get all the episodes delivered right to your service of choice andy how else can you find out about the fantastic four no i meant the film file <laughs> You can head over to social media channels such as Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Mastodon, Threads, pretty much anywhere. Search for Film File UK. We'll be on there somewhere. Uh, you can also get in touch with us directly, podcast at filmfile.uk. If you want to email us in any thoughts, suggestions, recommendations that you think we should watch, things that you want us to deep dive, we're happy to listen to anything that you send us. And now it's time talking of deep dives for this week's deep dive 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 this week's deep dive takes us to a time when politics was a grubby affair nope not over the last week we're going back to 1976 
for the biographical political drama, All the President's Men, directed by Alan J. Pakula, with a screenplay by the great, legendary in fact, William Goldman, based on the 1974 nonfiction book of the same name by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, interestingly, uh, one of which was in the news this week. Uh, the two journalists who were involved in investigating the scandal for the Washington Post of the Watergate tapes. Oh, but it's touching. Forget the myths that the media has created about the White House. The truth is, these are not very bright guys, and things got out of hand. Hunt's come in from the cold. Supposedly, he's got a lawyer with $25,000 in a brown paper bag. They follow the money. What do you mean? Where? Well, I can't tell you that. But you could tell me that. No, I have to do this my way. You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. Nominated for multiple Oscars, uh, Golden Globes and BAFTA. This is one of the few films that had been preserved in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress for being culturally, culturally, historically and aesthetically significant. This was the film about the Watergate scandal and that brought down the presidency of Richard Nixon. This is one of those iconic 1970s uh, thrillers. This was Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman at their most seriously top of their game cool. And, and boy, they are cool. This is one of those films that's still talked about today. The entire Watergate scandal has become not only a part of history, but also something of, uh, of, of folklore. Mm. This is about a story that changed politics and investigative journalism in a way that couldn't ever happen again. This is a film that showcases a time when, yeah, it's something that I moan about so often is there's no journalistic integrity anymore. No one searches for facts or information. They just regurgitate stuff. But this focuses on that time when journalistic integrity was the most important thing, even when up against a major conspiracy to cover up the actual news. Uh, it, show, it shows the true story of how the Washington Post pursued their suspicions on what had actually happened around the break-in at Watergate, um, which was the Democratic headquarters, which had been broken into, discovered by security guard Frank Wallace. It then spun out and was initially just kind of brushed under the carpet. But these two reporters got a f an inkling that something wasn't quite right. And thankfully, their bosses at the Washington Post let them keep digging for it, let them keep running for it, even though they were up against no information, no one wanting to talk, and people who'd clearly been intimidated into staying quiet. Um, it's, it's chilling because it's a film that... What I love about this film, and it was great rewatching it this week, because this is the first time I've rewatched it in about a decade and a half, and it's so understated. You know, you've got Redford and Hoffman are on fantastic performance. Oh, they were All top the of the game. They really were at this point. But no one's scene stealing and no one's showboating. Everything is understated. 
And it's the story itself of their investigation that's the important thing. There's no action. It's not an action film. It's pure dialogue. This is what this is the kind of film that Sorkin delivers these days, where it's all about the dialogue. It's all about what's going on, what's being said, and it's less about you know the activities going on. It introduces the world through this film to for those of us in the UK. We've tried to decipher what the Watergate scandal was for decades. We, we, we've got no idea. We, it doesn't mean anything to us. But this film helps put a lot of it into context, that even if you don't know the full details of what was going on with the bugging and the manipulations for years leading up to um, the break-in, it shows the corruption that that government had and the power that they had in order to cover that corruption. And there's a serious element of threat, particularly towards the back end of this film. After Redford's had his multiple communications with Deep Throat, played marvellously by Hal, Hal Holbrook, who was the first and only choice for the role of Deep Throat. And he then starts to get paranoid that he's being followed, he's being watched, and his life's in danger. And it's chilling, as well as being engrossing. And one thing that I did pick up on this time around, and one thing that I really love, is that it's a film that, when it ends, it could have gone on for so much longer and told you the rest of the investigation that was going on. But instead, whereas any other film would go to in 1968 that this happened and then it does cue cards, this does headline bulletins coming up on the typewriter to tell you what happened over the the following few years relate like as a result of the Washington Post's investigation. It's a stunning film about the power of the press when the press uses its power accurately. You know, and it, we live in a time now of of grubby journalism. Uh, over the last week has just proved that with uh, news stories here in the UK and how salacious stories will are used to push out political stories um, yep. to keep it diversive and uh, draw attention away from from stuff that really really matters. But this provides a great study of what it's like to be a journalist and why it works is the believability of uh, of redford and dustin hoffman and jason robards as the editor was apparently again the, mm. the only real choice to do this um and it is it's an exhilarating uh, brilliant piece of 1970s um paranoia but this time it's true and a, a lot of the thrillers that came out in in that particular area all dealt with that sort of paranoia but this worked because as you said it's really really underplayed and these two young reporters sent down and basically brought down a presidency is just uh not only a genius story but works mm. in a, this genius film where there is paranoia exhilaration self-doubt uh, and then finally finally courage and um the, the fact that it changed politics uh in such a huge way and we're still living in the aftermath and um you know i don't think this kind of news reporting will ever happen again and this film chronicles chronicles it brilliantly interesting behind the scenes trivia on this such as there's this the scene which is a six minute long scene of robert redford on the phone which is a continuous six minute yeah. take and he accidentally called the phone caller by the wrong name towards the end of the shot, but he stuck to character and continued saying the lines. And so it ended up getting used in the final cut as though it was just a natural thing to, we've all done it. 
yeah. we've accidentally called people by the wrong name on the phone. It felt natural. Um, Frank Wallace played himself, the security guard, who had discovered the break-in at the Watergate complex. And in order to get, get the feel for their characters right, Redford and Hoffman hung out at the Washington Post for several weeks before shooting commenced, observing the reporters, observing staff meetings, getting an idea for the kind of bickering and banter and the, you know, you work alongside people, you might not always get on with them, the, the arguments that can take place so that they could deliver a natural feel of a newsroom when it came to the set. And it certainly pays off because it does feel the most, the most fluid and dynamic of sets of a newsroom that there's been. I mean, we've, in recent years, we've seen like Tom Hanks do similar with The Post. Yeah. Um, but I think that this film is the definitive newsroom movie. Absolutely. I mean, Redford, Redford really championed this. Um, he began asking about the Watergate break-ins while promoting The Candidate, which we talked in our, um, we talked about great political films. The Candidate is, is one of those. And then read, uh, Washington, then read Woodward and Bernstein's Watergate stories in the post while waiting to start filming the way we were. Redford bought the rights uh, to Woodward and Bernstein's book in 1974 with the idea of adapting it into a film. He hired William Goldman, who he'd worked previously with on Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid to write the script. Uh, Goldman said that Woodward was extremely helpful to him, but Bernstein wasn't. Goldman wrote that his crucial decision regarding the screenplay structure was to discard basically the second half of the film um, and delivered his first draft. Warner Brothers signed on, but Redford wasn't happy with Goldman's first draft and apparently neither were Woodward and Bernstein as it didn't, they just didn't like it. Uh, Redford asked for suggestions. Uh, Nora Ephron, who was uh, Bernstein's girlfriend, came on board. Uh, Redford was dissatisfied with that and went back to Goldman, who saw it as a bit of a betrayal uh, from Redford. No matter what, they did come up with a fantastic movie. And if you haven't had the chance to see it, then then you should. Um, I mean, it is that great 1970s sense of political paranoia. It's got fantastic performances in it, and it just is a, a, a riveting film, an, an absolutely riveting film about journalism. Yep, thoroughly agree. Uh, it took home four awards at the 49th Academy Awards in 1977. Uh, Best Supporting Actor for Jason Robards, Best Screenplay for William Goldman, Best Art Direction and Best Sound. Um, it was nominated for three other, four other awards, Picture, Director, Supporting Actress and Film Editing, and it's deserved of any praise that it ever gets. Um, well worth checking out. Uh, and interestingly, it lost uh, Best Picture to uh, to Rocky that came out in 1977. <laughs> but this is uh, an absolutely uh, essential piece of, of filmmaking. And it really did change the way that we look at politics forever. Yeah. Andy, where can we find All the President's Men if we wish to see it? And we really should see it if we consider ourselves film fans. Uh, it's not available for free on any streaming service, but you can rent it. Um, from all the streaming services or just go and buy it add it to your collection you deserve it we'll be back again with another deep dive next week it's now time for this week's reviews and we are choosing to accept mission impossible dead reckoning part one ethan i understand you're upset i'm not upset 
You wanted me to listen. This is me listening. This mission is gonna cost you dearly. And the world's gonna be coming after you. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, July 12th. The return of Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt in a film directed by now, it seems to be the series' main director, Christopher McQuarrie. Can you remember actually when, when the whole Mission Impossible franchise started way back in, when was it, Andy? 1996. 1996, directed by Brian De Palma. With each film, we'd have a, a different director. That ended after Brad Bird's run with Christopher McQuarrie jumping on board for Rogue Nation and now has seems to have settled down into the pilot seat to steer the franchise alongside Tom Cruise to where it is now. I remember this as a TV series, uh, sometimes worried with some of the movies that they moved away from what the TV series was about. But as of recently, they re kind of rekindled this. I've gone mm. back and watched it. I think for me, Andy, Mission Impossible 3 is where it started to feel like the series that it played yeah. up to that. It, it wasn't embarrassed by what the series was about. I think one was pretty intriguing. Uh, two was a bit of a disappointment, the John Woo one. JJ Abrahams is what I think injected it again. Brad Bird's I watched just last night and think it's, uh, again, feels an awful lot like the TV series, but it's Macquarie who's taken it into this sort of uh, walking between creating its own mythos and uh, the, the classic series. And in this one, Dead Reckoning, and we've got to keep pointing out that it is part one, a diabolical AI basically is threatening the society, the collapse of society. And only the MIF, not the, and there's a joke about what that means in the movie, <laughs> uh, can stop it. But alongside this, You've got the past catching up with Ethan, which I think, and Andy and I talked about this off air, is taken as in a very, very certain direction. But it also shows us some insight with this particular movie of how you become a member of this particular uh, particular mm. team. Um, I just, I've just got to say, I had so much fun with this. A lot has already been made about the stunt work. And yes, you can't watch any of these recent um, Tom Cruise movies without him bringing the, the guy never phones it in not when he's yeah. riding a motorbike over the top of a mountain or leaping out of a plane tom cruise delivers everything with full force he's got love for this movie and that love shines through when they talked about tom cruise saving cinema last year with with top gun maverick it's because because of the joy that i think he he brings to it and i think that that comes out through the screen into this yeah um i think there's, there's moments in this film that i thought you could tell how much cruise enjoys making it because there was a few of the stunts that he was doing them and he looks like he's got a big beaming smile on his face and i was just like i'm sure ethan wouldn't be smiling so much but you know what i'll let you off tom you seem to be having a good time and you're doing all this for real uh that it's amusing watching this particularly for the the key scene that we've had promoted over the past couple of years of the the rail the, the train journey and the big crash and we know that that was shot not too far from here and it doesn't look like yorkshire no no it doesn't i thought it was it was the alps 
they've used some rather good CGI melding to add mountain ranges in to the top of the hills that he was shot in. Marvellous, marvellous. Right from the start, I and I did read today that the opening scene was supposed to be from the second film. Um, so we weren't supposed to see the submarine okay. thing that opens the film. But that was decided after like a first like look through by the studio. It's like, the, the story's a bit confusing. We don't know what this AI is. We don't know what you're talking about. Wouldn't it be good to put this before? And so they decided to put it in as the starting point. So that that way, and I think it kind of works. Is yeah. it, it lets you... It lets you straight away know that this is a mega computer that can do pretty much anything. You get to see its first uses in that scene. And then as they're chasing, because it, it, this is a MacGuffin film. Yeah. The MacGuffin is a key. Well, it's two parts of a key to make one key to open another MacGuffin. The other MacGuffin will come in in the next one. And it is just all getting the key and then giving the key away so that you can manage to find out what the key is for. It's com- complicated, as you'd expect from a Mission Impossible film. It's woven, but it all makes sense if you stay on board with it. It is a it is a great cat and mouse movie, isn't it? It is. Mm. Yeah, uh, losing it, getting it, losing it again. Raiders of Lost Ark. You know, you have yes. it in your possession. You lose it from your possession. You've got to get it back. Uh, there are so many great little set pieces, as, as well as we'll talk about the big set piece towards the end. The airport sequence, for instance, is 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 just a delight uh with with playing with this idea of digital face mapping and and what that means and it sort of moves on from the classic old latex mask uh of of mission impossible of old and then you get the 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 fiat in italy scene uh, and that's a lot of fun and then you get probably one of the most exciting endings i've seen to a film in an awful long time because (laughs) and, and it works because Tom Cruise proves his, his uh, physicality because we've Ooh. seen him leap over a, a mountain and then you see him on a train. We're now preconditioned that we're thinking this guy's doing it, doing it for absolute real. And there is that, uh, I mean, there's probably tons and tons of CGI that you don't see, but it, it does have a physicality to it, which is, uh, which is kind of old fashioned, but, had me on the edge of the seat. I, I took the child to this, and he was eating his jumper <laughs> during the last bit. There's, uh, uh, it, it does keep you. It, it is that that sort of very very thrilling. I'm, I'm I was with it all the way through. Absolutely loved it. Uh, Tom Cruise is a great central lead as always. Ethan, it is portrayal of Ethan Hunt over the series has just grown and grown and grown. Um, Haley Atwell is Stole a great every new, newcomer. Stole every moment she was in. Uh, Ving Rhames and Simon Pegg re- reprise their roles as Luther and Benji. They're always welcome on screen. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson reprises her role as Isla. Um, and straight, she just gets better and better. Yeah. And then you've got Vanessa Kirby as uh, the daughter of Max, played by Vanessa Redgrave in the first film. Yeah. And there's, it's, that's not the only drawback to the first film, uh, throwback to the first film, because we also get the return of Henry Sersney as Kittredge, who we haven't seen since that very first film. But now we get the feeling that there's there's a much friendlier working relationship and understanding between him and Ethan Hunt than what the first film suggested. Um, Yeah, yeah, totally agree. I like how they built up this cast of characters within the films and there's there's a sense of 
uh, a sense of narrative that runs across the entire saga now. It, it was just an absolute joy. I cannot wait. Next year cannot come fast enough to see part two of this. Uh, I think this was the film that I was looking forward to most this summer. And I'm glad to say that it delivered. This is a good action romp. By making AI the villain, it feels contemporary. Uh, I've, I've been a big fan of all the Mission Impossible films, and they just got better and better and better. Whether this one's my favourite, I'm still edging towards three. I had such a good time with it. Absolutely solid cinema entertainment. Get yourself to the local cinema and get this watched on the biggest screen available. That's the big releases for this week, or the big release for this week. But next week, boy, are we going to be busy. Yes, so at cinemas this coming week, the big films of The Secret Garden, and my name is Alfred Hitchcock. No, no, no. <laughs> Barbie and Oppenheimer are the big films. Those are the two are also on limited release for different crowds. It's a good market at the moment for whatever you want. Um, now TV and Sky. I had a lot of love for this. It got slammed by critics, but it got appreciated by the general audience. Babylon lands this week. If you've not seen it, check it out on Now TV and Sky this week. Uh, Netflix. I've had my eye on this when it was on a limited cinema release, but didn't get around to watching it. So I'll talk about it possibly next week, possibly the week after, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Um, also, They Cloned Tyrone lands this week. Yeah, I'm interested and, in uh, and for those people who really want to suffer, Venom Let There Be Garbage. I mean, Venom Let There Be Carnage lands on Netflix this week. On Amazon, the, the civil rights-driven film Till arrives this week. It's supposed to be really good, so I'm adding that onto my list to watch. And Disney Plus, we've got The Bear Season 2. Uh, that's it. We're done for this week. But before we go, and we do this every week, we're going to tell you about our neat thing. Just stuff that we've enjoyed, whether it's a book, whether it's a meal, whether it's a TV series, doesn't matter. We think it's neat. We're going to tell you about it. And Andy, your neat thing for this week is? My neat thing. First two episodes landed on Apple TV Plus this week. And it's after party. Oh, you've TV seen it already. Um, I've got. Oh. I promised myself there's a certain amount of things I've got to finish watching before <laughs> I'll start anything new, uh, and that's. I, I was desperate to start watching it, but I, I made that promise to myself, and I, you know what? I'm sticking by it. Straight in on season two, uh, Tiffany Haddish, Sam Richardson, and Zoe Chow reprising their roles as the the mystery has taken place at a wedding where the groom has been killed. Um, seemingly poisoned, possibly, we don't know. And as with this first season, everyone is going to get investigated one by one, telling their backstory in the style that they see their lives. So on the second episode, we've already had a period drama, which was hilarious. And I can't wait for the third episode this week because it's um, Paul Walter Hauser, who is going to be doing a detective noir approach and I just cannot wait to see this. What I loved about season one of the After Party was the style that everyone told their own tales. And it was like loads of little mini movies that all wove together, but all felt so very different, including like the animated episode, which was just genius. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the joy of the series for those who've not watched it. Each episode is, is a different film style, whether it was an, an 80s kind of throwback, as Andy said, the uh, the animated episode. Each one is a different genre. So I'm just excited to see what each week brings us visually and story-wise, because what is worth remembering, it's not just like how they tell the story. It is a well-woven story. That first season kept you guessing throughout. 
you always thought you'd get like to the end of each episode. I was like, ah, oh, I think I know who the killer is. And then you go, oh, no, this story has now changed. And I'm getting the same vibe this year that it's going to keep playing with our expectations. After Party Season 2 is one of the reasons to continue subscribing to Apple TV+. Plus. Get it checked out. Big fan of Apple TV Plus, as you know. Uh, it's not the quantity, but it's certainly the quality. Hey, for me, mine's a uh, collected edition DC comic, what they call DC Black, which is sort of a slightly watered down version of the classic Vertigo. I've become a fan over the last few years of writer Tom King. I originally saw his work when he did the Vision uh, miniseries for Marvel. Uh, his Mr. Miracle was was fantastic. I think a couple of weeks ago I talked about his run on Supergirl. He always delivers something. There's a, always a sense of using very familiar tropes in his in his work, and then doing something very different. And for me, he's and for me his approach on human target has been uh, just an absolute an absolute delight. So for human target. For those who don't know who that character is, and this is one you're going way back to the early 70s, created by Len Wein and Carmine Infantino. Christopher Chance has made a living out of being a human target. So a guy for hire who disguised himself as his client to invite would-be assassins to attempt to murder him. In his latest case, he is protecting Lex Luthor when things go sideways. An assassination attempt uh, chance didn't see coming leaves invulnerable and has to solve a murder his own murder he's been poisoned and he's just got 12 days to discover who in the dcu hated lex luther enough to want him dead so you've got this combination of dealing with uh, dc characters in a bit more of an adult way you've got the human target who's this hard-boiled gritty detective You've got all the tropes of things like Dead on Arrival, the classic film. Um, this is a classy and classic detective noir, uh, as told by one of the best writers working in comics today, with some just absolutely fantastic art from, Ge from Greg Smallwood, who uh, a lot of his art is sort of painted, gives the impression that it's painted with watercolours and has a sort of very 1960s vibe. You might remember The Human Target has been made into two TV series, initially starring Rick Springfield, and then again a few years back. And they've never really captured what makes this character really, really work. The book's been divided up into two. So I am six issues in, and each issue deals with another day in this 12 days before what may be the death of Christopher Chance. The book one is available now well worth it tom king is a great comic writer who does something very different with the medium that's my neat thing human target from dc comics and that's us done for this week this show will self-destruct in five seconds we'll see you soon